Well, let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 3, for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning, we are um, going to be looking at a handful of passages in the book of Genesis and one passage in Luke uh, this morning. And if you want to give a title to the message, it would be Long Expected Jesus. Long Expected Jesus. This message is largely from the book of Genesis, but it is uh, very much uh, leaves us looking at Christ and looking forward to uh, the birth of Christ that we'll be focusing on uh, next Sunday. Bertrand Russell is a name that made me familiar to some of you. He was an avowed atheist of the last century who uh, wrote a book entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. Uh, yet, though he did not believe in the existence of God and argued against God's existence throughout his life, he once wrote a letter to a friend in 1916, and he wrote these words to her. He said, the center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision, God. I do not find it. I do not think it is to be found, but the love of it is my life. It fills every passion I have. It is the actual spring of life in me. Interesting words from an atheist. Bertrand Russell is confessing to the fact that at the center of his being is a searching for God. And this sense of searching fills every other passion that he has and leaves him with a terrible pain. Russell himself may try to suppress the truth about God as much as he can, but his heart is still restless and pines for God. That pain that Bertrand Russell found within himself is actually in every person. In every heart, there is ultimately what we would quantify as a longing for God. This longing ends up getting twisted so badly that most people don't know that it is a desire for God that lies at the bottom of all of their other longings. They think they long for sex or some relationship or for money or for power. And so they pursue those things only to discover that those things don't satisfy their heart's hunger. Because at the bottom of all of their longings is a desire, ultimately, that only God can satisfy. C.S. Lewis once said it this way. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's so true. And I think we can say it differently too. 
we can also say that if we find within ourselves a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for relationship with someone from another world. A couple weeks ago, we saw Jacob on his deathbed in Genesis 49. After living a very full life and experience, experiencing a lot of blessing, yet there's still a longing in Jacob that has not yet been satisfied. He gives expression to this longing in Genesis 49, verse 18, when he says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. To Jacob's credit, he's admitting his longing and is confessing it to the right person. He knows exactly what he was longing for, salvation. And he knows that this salvation was Jehovah's to give because he says, for your salvation, I wait. We also saw that two weeks ago that the Hebrew word that is translated salvation in this verse is the Hebrew word Yeshua. Jacob is saying to God, for your Yeshua, I wait, O Lord. And Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Jacob is saying something akin to what we sang earlier in our service today, as well as last week. He's saying, come, thou long expected Jesus, Yeshua. But why would Jacob have such a longing at this stage of his life. I mean, after all, God has appeared to Jacob on various occasions in visions. He's seen a ladder going from heaven to earth with angels going up and down the ladder. God has appeared to him. God has spoken wonderful promises of assurance and relationship and blessing to Jacob. God has even wrestled with Jacob and given him a new name. God has shown his goodness to Jacob with remarkable providences that should leave Jacob a deeply satisfied man as he comes to die. And yet we find him here still waiting for something, for someone from Jehovah on his deathbed. What is it that Jacob is longing for? Why does he still have this longing? And what informs this longing? What I want to do this morning is I want us to sweep back through the book of Genesis and I want us to observe four specific messianic promises of salvation spoken in the book of Genesis. Promises which left Jacob on his deathbed saying, For your Yeshua I wait. O Lord, and perhaps as we look at these promises, you will find what you are longing for, too. I hope that is the case. The first of the promises that we see in the book of Genesis, we can word this way, is that a descendant of Eve will arise and crush the serpent's head. That's a promise God makes in Genesis chapter three. A descendant of Eve will arise and crush the serpent's head. A massive turning point in human history is the moment when Adam and Eve 
sinned and partook of the forbidden fruit, God had promised that they would surely die on the day that they partook, and yet they disregarded God's command and they partook anyway, and immediately they experience death on multiple levels, the first of which is a most awful death of innocence. Their eyes were open. They became ashamed of their nakedness. Think about it. Adam and Eve were the only two people on the planet, a husband and a wife who had the whole planet to themselves, yet they rushed to cover themselves with fig leaves in order to hide themselves from one another. Also, if part of the definition of death involves separation from God, then Adam and Eve experienced death on that awful level too. Immediately, when they heard the sound of God coming through the garden on that very day, they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. God calls out to Adam and says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I hid myself because I was afraid. And God says, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? And Adam tells God what Eve did and giving to him the fruit. But then he admits his sin. God then looks at Eve and says, what have you done? Eve tells God that the serpent deceived her. And then she admits her sin. God then turns to the serpent. And he doesn't ask the serpent any question. He curses the serpent to crawl on its belly for the rest of its miserable existence. And then he speaks some astonishing words in Genesis 3.15. Listen to what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is one of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. And it's the first explicit gospel promise that we find in Scripture, actually. Theologians call verse 15 the first gospel. Martin Luther said of this verse, this text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Adam and Eve have sinned, and God is almost right away declaring the good news of a coming champion who will crush the serpent's head. Notice how God begins his promise to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The word enmity speaks of hostility and warfare. This is not just a declaration of war by God. It's also an announcement in which God declares to the serpent that Eve is going to be on God's side in this war against Satan. God is announcing that a change will be coming over Eve, a good change. And God is the one who will bring about this change. It is he, he says, who will put enmity between her and the serpent Satan has gained no ally for himself in tempting Eve 
to fall into sin. He just gained a fierce enemy, and God's going to see to that. And God doesn't just promise that he will put enmity between Eve and the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In other words, God will put enmity between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring. That raises the question, who are the serpent's offspring? Well, the rest of Scripture makes clear that the seed of the serpent are human beings who side with the serpent or side with Satan in his war against God. Jesus speaks about such people in John chapter 8, verse 44, describing them as hating him and refusing to listen to him because they are of their father, the devil. And they carry out the devil's desires. In Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist refers to the Pharisees literally as the offspring of snakes. Brood of vipers is how some translations translate that. Literally, offspring of snakes. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus calls the Pharisees who were misrepresenting him in an awful way. He refers to them as offspring of snakes as well. In Matthew 23, 15, Jesus speaks of such ones as children of hell. You put all this together and you realize that the seed of the serpent refers to natural humanity whom the serpent has led into rebellion against God. And so we know, therefore, who the seed of the serpent is, but who is the seed of the woman? Well, it's those who are born from Eve, obviously, and who carry in their hearts Eve's newfound hatred of the serpent. Henry Morris says that the seed of the woman are those in the human family who are brought into right relationship to God through faith. And we would only add that they are also those who are aligned with Eve in her war against Satan or the serpent. But then notice God's promise in the second half of verse 15. While it's true that Eve will have many spiritual offspring who side with God in his war against the serpent, there will arise a singular descendant from Eve who will engage in a mighty conflict with the serpent himself. Listen to the outcome that God promises. Speaking of the serpent, God says, He, this coming one, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The Hebrew word that is translated bruise is used twice in this verse, and the Hebrew word just literally means to strike a blow, to strike at. And so the translation would be, he shall strike you on the head and you shall strike him on the heel. That's what God is saying to the serpent. And the kind of striking that this champion will deliver against the serpent being to his head clearly is a crushing of the head. You don't slap a snake in the head. 
or punch a snake in the head. You stomp it with your foot to crush it, to crush the head. And this is what God is saying that the coming champion will do to the serpent. In contrast, the serpent's strike to the heel does injury but does not result in defeat. It should also be noted that God gives no specifics as to the timetable here. In human history, when this champion will arise, and commentators say this is actually intentional on God's part. I love what one commentator says. Listen to this. He says, by leaving open the question of just what woman from whom the Savior was to be born, God mocks the tempter, always leaving him in uncertainty regarding which one would ultimately overthrow him so that the devil had to live in the continual dread of every woman's son that was born. Imagine the paranoia at every birth being there to see, is this going to be the one whom I'm going to engage in battle with whom God says will crush my head? So that's Genesis 3.15, the first time the gospel is declared in Genesis. But that's not all that we find in this book. Let me have you guys turn over to Genesis chapter 12, where we find another messianic promise of salvation spoken in the book of Genesis, a salvation that Jacob is still longing for on his deathbed. Let's word this promise this way. The blessing of justification or righteousness will come to all nations through Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham and calls him to leave his homeland and to go to a land that he will show him. And then God makes a series of promises to him. And listen to these promises beginning in verse 2 of Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Sitting at the apex of a series of wonderful promises that God makes to Abraham is this one regarding God's plan to bring blessing to all the nations or all the families of the earth in Abraham. In other words, God is promising Abraham that Abraham would somehow, some way, be the channel of blessing for the whole world. It would reach all nations and every family on earth. What does God mean when he promises that all the families of the earth would be blessed in Abraham? What does he mean by that word blessed? Well, we actually have inspired commentary on this very promise in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, which answers this question for us, speaking to the Galatians in Galatians 3, Paul says this in verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles 
by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Literally pro-evangelized Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Paul is telling the Galatians, and he's telling us here that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God is literally preaching the gospel to Abraham, and he's promising to bring blessing to all of the nations of the earth. And the blessing that God has in mind, central in his mind, is that he will justify the Gentiles by faith. That's the central blessing that God promises to bring to all the families of the earth. In other words, God is promising to make sinners righteous before him, to forgive them of their sins, and to make them righteous before the bar of God's perfect justice. God will provide this righteousness, this justification for Gentiles by faith and not by works. And this is going to happen through Abraham. Later in Genesis chapter 15, God is going to make some astounding promises to Abraham. And we're going to be told in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that in response, listen to this, Abraham believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. The righteousness This righteousness came to Abraham before he was circumcised, before he even had a child. Abraham has an aging body and a barren wife, no children, and he had nothing except a crazy promise that his descendants would be as the stars of heaven. And Abraham believes in the Lord And God declared him righteous as a result of his faith. And God did this spiritual work in Abraham before he even gave Isaac as a son to Abraham. Because when God promised Abraham that he would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth through Abraham, embodied in God's promise was his plan to bring righteousness and justification through faith, through Abraham. A faith that God obviously wants to nurture and produce in Abraham and a righteousness he wants to produce in Abraham first. Do you know the truth is even if we don't know all that the New Testament ends up revealing about how this righteousness comes to sinners through faith, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, what we do know so far from Genesis is that there will be a war that rages between Eve's spiritual offspring and the serpent's offspring, or Satan, and those who follow him. A battle of champions is going to occur in some future day, and in that battle, the serpent, or Satan, will bruise the heel of God's champion, And God's champion will end up crushing Satan's head or the serpent's head. 
And somehow, some way, all of this is going to happen in connection with Abraham. And it will result in genuine spiritual blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth. That much is clear. But these are not the only promises we see in Genesis about the salvation that God is going to provide through the coming Messiah. In fact, turn now to Genesis 22, where we find yet another messianic promise of salvation spoken in the book of Genesis, a promise which still leaves Jacob feeling incomplete on his deathbed. The third promise we see in Genesis is that God will provide himself a lamb for a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. This is amazing. Observe how the story begins in verse 1, and there's a lot of details we're going to skip right over uh, to get to the heart of what I want us to focus on. It says in verse 1 of Genesis 22, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, fortunately, we know where the land of Moriah is because Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we are told that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord In Jerusalem, where? On Mount Moriah. Based on that statement alone, we know that Mount Moriah is the place where the temple was built and where the temple mount of Jerusalem stands to this very day. Evidently, there is a particular spot that God has in mind for this sacrifice to take place. And it's on a mountain of Moriah. Now observe Abraham's obedience to God's command. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place From a distance, notice the emphasis on the place. Abraham's instant obedience is remarkable. How would you respond if God gave you such a command to sacrifice your child as a burnt offering? Abraham responds immediately. He leaves early in the morning. He obviously wastes no time in his travels. The journey is about 50 miles by foot. So the fact that Abraham is seeing the place of sacrifice at some point on the third day of his travels shows that he's traveling at a pretty brisk pace for a 117-year-old man. But here's the question all of us should be asking. What motivated Abraham to make this crazy journey? What would motivate a man to obey such a command that violates every natural instinct within him. Well, there's actually two moments in Abraham's journey when we're given a glimpse of what Abraham was actually thinking. 
And the first of these is found in verse 5. Look at what the text says. Upon seeing the place of sacrifice from a distance, verse 5 says, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, pointing to a particular place, and we will worship and return to you. Literally, we will worship and we will return to you. Clearly, Abraham believes that he and Isaac will go over there to the spot where God had designated. He believes that he and Isaac will worship and he believes that he and Isaac will return to his servants. And from this alone, we see that Abraham believed that God was somehow, some way going to see to it that Isaac would come through this ordeal alive and return to these servants together with Abraham. In Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was believing in the promise of God that God had already given to him that in Isaac, your descendants will be called. God had already spoken that promise to him. And so according to the writer of Hebrews, it is because Abraham believed that promise that Abraham, verse 19, considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. In other words, in Abraham's mind, God was going to keep his promise to provide descendants for Abraham through Isaac, which means that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he dies in the sacrifice. This shows us that a part of what motivated Abraham's obedience was a crazy belief in the promises of God, including God's power to raise the dead. But Abraham's faith is even greater than this. Observe what happens starting in verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he, Isaac, said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Abraham is firm in his belief that God is going to provide a lamb for this sacrifice. Somehow, some way, God will provide the lamb. What drove Abraham up this hill to offer his son as a burnt offering? It was the belief that God himself would provide a lamb for this burnt offering. If you interviewed Abraham afterwards, he would have said, I didn't know how it all was going to happen. Maybe God would provide a replacement for Isaac. Maybe God wanted Isaac to be sacrificed and then God would raise him from the dead. I didn't know. I just knew that somehow, some way, this adventure would end up being more of a story about God providing than it would be about my sacrificing. And I knew that I could trust God with that. And that's what drove me onward toward Mount Moriah. 
I think of all the lesser things that we just don't trust God with. What faith? Then observe what happens next, verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, notice the ongoing emphasis on the place in particular where this sacrifice is to occur. It's a place that God had told Abraham that he wanted the sacrifice to be made. Verses 10 through 12. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Keep in mind that the purpose of a burnt offering was atonement for sins. According to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, God is telling Abraham not to offer Isaac, yet Abraham knows that an atoning sacrifice still needs to be offered. So he takes the ram, cuts its throat, lets it bleed out and die. Then he places his hand on the head of the ram and offers it to God as an atonement for his and for Isaac's sin. And one of the things that may bother you about this story is how it doesn't fit with what you would expect to happen. Isaac asked Abraham, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham responds by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. However, instead of providing a lamb, God provides a ram. And it is the ram that Abraham sacrifices. So what's up with that? Well, the answer is twofold. A ram, first of all, is a particular kind of adult male sheep. So it's close enough to fall within the category of a sheep for a burnt offering. However, it is still a different word than what Abraham and Isaac had used, which leaves us with a second answer to this question of what's up. And that is that the Holy Spirit still wants us to be asking Isaac's question. Where is the lamb? You see, if you read Genesis 22, if you read what we have just read through and you aren't still asking Isaac's question when you come to the end of the story, you're missing one of the transcendent messages of this passage. Abraham said that God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. But when Genesis 22 comes to an end, we're still left without the lamb. With the benefit of hindsight, we agree with Henry Morris, who says that the complete fulfillment 
of Abraham's words must await the true lamb, the lamb of God. And it seems that that's exactly what Abraham wants us to think, which is why Abraham does what he does in verse 14. Look at this. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Hebrew name that Abraham gives to this place is Yahweh Yireh, which literally means Yahweh will see or Yahweh will see to it in the sense of providing. The Lord will provide is a good translation of the Hebrew here. But notice, guys, that Abraham is not naming this place the Lord provided. Past tense. He names it the Lord will provide using the same tense that he used earlier when he told his son Isaac that the Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And here's why this is important. Abraham is not so much naming this place after God's provision of a ram to sacrifice in the place of Isaac. He's naming this place the Lord will provide in order to prophetically point to the fact that this will be the location where God in the future will provide the lamb for a sacrifice. In other words, Abraham is prophesying here. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus tells people that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. And this is almost certainly one of those moments when Abraham is looking with a clear eye into the future and seeing Christ's day. And he's rejoicing over the amazing privilege that is now his to visit the very spot of God's future provision of the Lamb. Abraham is now realizing why God had him travel all of this distance and come to this particular place. And with this name, the Lord will provide that he places upon this place, Abraham is saying, X marks the spot. Keep your eyes right here, Abraham is saying. The Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice right here in this place. And Abraham would also say, I don't know why this is yet, but God almost had me lay down the life of my beloved son in this very spot. Go figure. Abraham bestows this name on this place. And it actually seems that in this time in human history, people understood his message, at least to some degree, though no one could have imagined the full scope of the fulfillment. Hundreds of years after this incident, Moses is writing the book of Genesis and he says to the children of Israel, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. People say with an eye toward the future, what is the it referring to? The lamb. Hundreds of years after Abraham's day, during Moses's day, people were still talking about that mountain of Moriah, and they spoke of it as the place where the lamb will one day be provided as a sacrifice. 
Indeed, one day in the future, a temple will be built on this very mountain where millions of lambs will be sacrificed for the sins of people, and all of those millions of sacrifices will point to the true lamb who will also be sacrificed on this very mountain for the sins of the world. By the way, there are two suggested sites of Christ's crucifixion, and both of those sites, as you see on the screen behind me, are on Mount Moriah. Well, thus far in Genesis, we are told that someone is coming who will be a mighty warrior, a warrior who will deliver a crushing blow to the serpent's head. We're also told that the spiritual blessing of being made righteous before God will come to all the nations by faith. We're also told that God will be providing a lamb for an atoning sacrifice on Mount Moriah, but these are not the only promises we see in Genesis. In Genesis 49, Isaac's son Jacob is speaking to his son Judah and delivers yet another promise, and it is here that we find yet another messianic promise of salvation spoken in the book of Genesis, a salvation that Jacob is still waiting for from his deathbed. We could state the promise this way, a ruler will arise from Judah to whom will be given the obedience of all peoples. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago, so I won't belabor this too much, but it does serve as a remarkable advance on what the earlier promises reveal. So it's worthwhile for us to look at this passage in connection with our theme today. In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob looks into the future and speaks the following, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In the first part of verse 10, Jacob is saying that a king will one day arise from among the descendants of Judah and once that king arises from Judah the right to rule will never be removed from Judah and handed over to a different tribe of Israel Jacob says that this situation will prevail until Shiloh comes meaning all the way up until when Shiloh comes who will continue Judah's rule this expression until Shiloh comes, can be understood in different ways, but many interpreters prefer to take the word Shiloh as a proper name, as the name of the coming one who will bring Shalah, or rest. He's the rest-giving one. And regardless of how we translate Jacob's statement here in verse 10, what is clear is that Ancient Jewish writers associated Shiloh with the Messiah. In fact, one ancient source paraphrases Jacob's thought this way. I quote, He who exercises dominion shall not pass away from the house of Yehuda or Judah until the Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom and whom the peoples shall obey. Other ancient Jewish teachers followed the same 
interpretation, one ancient Jewish commentator is speaking about a coming Messiah, and he says the Messiah's name is Shiloh, as it is stated, until Shiloh comes. He says, pointing back to this very verse, Genesis 49.10. So all in all, this statement by Jacob is predicting that a messianic person worthy of the name Shiloh, the rest-giving one, is coming. And then Jacob says to him, shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not just the obedience of Judah's brothers and and their descendants within Israel, but the obedience of the peoples. In other words, the nations of the world. Jacob is talking about how the Messiah will bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation under his rule, people who will acknowledge his right to be king and who will give him their obedience from around the world. As for the word, that is translated obedience. The Hebrew word here is a rare word that I think shows up only twice in the Old Testament. And it's not altogether easy to translate. Some translations use the word honor to translate this word. Some use the word gathering. Some allegiance. Many use the word obedience or obey to translate this word. You'll be interested to know that the Greek Septuagint translates the Hebrew word here with a Greek word that means hope or expectation. The Latin Vulgate follows suit and uses the word, listen to this Latin word, expectatio, to translate the Hebrew word here, expectation, hopeful expectation. The ancient understanding of this promise is that Shiloh is the ideal ruler and the expectation of the nations. In other words, he's the perfect ruler that everyone has been waiting for. The one whom the nations will obey cheerfully when he comes. So putting together everything that we've learned today, we're told In Genesis alone, that someone is coming who will be a mighty warrior, a warrior who will deliver a crushing blow to the serpent's head. We're told that the spiritual blessing of being made right with God will come to all of the nations. We're told that God will be providing a lamb for an atoning sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And we're told that this one will be a ruler from the tribe of Judah who will bring true rest and to whom will be given the obedience of the peoples the world over. In other words, this coming one will be a warrior. He'll be a lamb. He'll be a lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will be a ruler whom the people of every nation will look at and say, this is the one that we have been expecting. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the rest-giving one that we've been desiring without even realizing it. This is the one we will give our obedience to. And this is the one who will bring blessing to every nation on earth. And we're blessed to just be under his rule. And guys, this is why we find Jacob on his deathbed in Genesis 49 saying, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. 
to wait for something means that you believe that it's coming so much so that you're willing to wait for it to come, but it also means that you don't feel fully complete or satisfied until it has come. And Jacob is not 100% satisfied because this hasn't come. As we saw two weeks ago, some ancient interpreters, Jewish interpreters, understood Jacob's words as messianic. One of the Jewish targums paraphrased Jacob as saying, for the redemption of the Messiah, which you have promised to bring, for this redemption, I wait. Jacob is paraphrased as saying here. Even more significantly, as I pointed out at the beginning, the Hebrew word translated salvation here is the word Yeshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus. Literally, Jacob here is saying, for your Yeshua, I wait, O Lord. Quite literally, Jacob is right now telling God, for your Jesus, I wait. And Jacob will not feel truly complete until Jesus comes. This is the Christmas season. So let's compare Jacob's confession with the confession of another elderly man named Simeon. In Luke 2, we are told the story of Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. But then in verse 25, we're told an interesting story about something that happened when Jesus was 40 days old. Listen to the story beginning in verse 25 of Luke 2. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he's waiting, just like Jacob died waiting, Simeon is waiting. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he... Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your what? Salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon is beside himself with joy. In verse 30, he says to God, my eyes have seen your salvation. In Genesis 49, verse 18 Jacob says, for your salvation, I wait, O Lord. Here, Simeon is holding the baby Jesus in his arms and is saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon's words are recorded for us in Greek, which Luke was writing in, but he would have spoken these words in Aramaic or Hebrew, and he would have used the word Yeshua to speak of the salvation that he is now beholding. Literally, he would have said, my eyes have seen your Yeshua. 
while holding the very baby whose name was Yeshua. Two old men, Jacob and Simeon, separated by 1,650 years, and both of them near death. What Jacob didn't get to see, Simeon saw. What Jacob was waiting for, Simeon held in his arms. Jacob spoke his words on his deathbed right before he died. Once Simeon sees Jesus, he's now ready to die. His search is over. Jacob's longing was Simeon's fulfillment. Contrary to Bertrand Russell, Simeon would say, the center of me was once a curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what this world contains, but I have found it, and my search is over. And I hope that is your testimony as well. Amazingly, all Simeon sees is a 40-day-old baby, and he actually still has some waiting to do. He can't begin to comprehend that John the Baptist will look at Jesus 30 years from now and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Simeon can't begin to comprehend how Jesus will be offered as a lamb on a mountain of Moriah. He can't begin to imagine how Jesus, through his death and Resurrection and ascension will deliver a crushing blow to the serpent's head and how God will ascend Jesus to his right hand where Jesus will rule from on high and bring blessing, the blessing of salvation and justification to people of every nation on earth. Simeon cannot begin to imagine how this Messiah will one day receive the happy obedience of people of every tribe and tongue and nation. But what Simeon could not imagine, we look back and know it all happened just as the book of Genesis promised. Yeshua has come, and he is the perfect match for our souls. I may not know you personally, but I know some things about you. I know that you were created by God and that you were created for God. I know that you have sinned as I have. I know that your heart will always be restless until you find your heart's rest in him. I know that you have an aching void inside of you that were someone to take a pencil and trace the outlines of that void inside of you, it would be in the very shape of Yeshua, of Jesus. And I know that he is the only one who can fill that void in a way that truly completes you and satisfies you and makes you whole. If you have never believed in Jesus, I call upon you to believe in him today. Call upon his name. Jesus is the atonement that you need. He's the lamb that you need. 
He is the ruler that you need. He's the warrior that you need who will fight for you. And he's the blessing that your soul most needs, without which you will never, ever be complete. Let's pray together. Lord, our Bibles, this book we're looking at today is not just 66 random books thrown together. This is the book that is cohesive in its revelation, spanning centuries and preaching one consistent message beyond what any single human mind could ever conceive or execute. We've been so blessed studying through the book of Genesis and and we've been left week after week gazing upon Christ in ways that are organically natural to the text itself. And once again, as we look at these promises in the book of Genesis, we see that you are pointing us to Christ again and again, saying he is the one. Believe in him. Put your eyes right here. Find your rest right here. Find your atonement right here. He is the lamb and the lion and the warrior, and the blessing that we most need. If there's any here today, Lord, that whose hearts you are touching and drawing to yourself, just ask, Lord, that you would melt their hearts with grace and that they would realize that this offer of salvation has been centuries in the making so that on this very day, thousands of years after these promises were spoken in the book of Genesis, this good news could be brought before them for them to receive this righteousness and salvation simply through faith in this champion whom we call Yeshua or Jesus. You are a great God and your Messiah that you give to us is worthy of our eternal praises. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you in return for all the ways you've blessed us, namely through Jesus. Receive what we give in this offering, Lord, and Use what we give to spread this amazing message about Jesus here in this community and all around the world, bringing it to peoples of every nation on earth. We're so blessed to give to you today with hearts of gratefulness for all that you have given to us. And we give ourselves to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. 
and all God's people said, Amen.